Well, on behalf of Pastor Steve and I, we just want to thank you for your support of last weekend, engaging in inviting friends and uh, so many hundreds of you who helped out in all kinds of various ways, ways that were behind the scenes or uncomfortably cold or however you were, you were called on to, to serve. We just want to thank you so much and um, appreciate all that you've done. We had such an opportunity once again to reach out into our community and, and minister to those who are lost and the urgency of the gospel message. And of course, we're kind of in the middle. We still have lots of Christmas events yet to go and we really want to encourage you to keep, keep up with the, the, uh, the energy and, and effort in inviting people to, to know Christ. We have uh, tonight and and our Christmas Eve service, and even Christmas Sunday morning. Bring some people to, to church with you, and, and uh, the, the days are, are short. There's an urgency to reach people for Christ. We have a, a big mission in front of us, but thanks so much for the great support we get from uh, the Calvary family, and uh, your, your heart for the gospel, your heart for the Lord comes through, and it's really gratifying and, and really something. So thank you so much for that, and uh, let's just open in prayer. Father, we pray this morning. And thank you for every opportunity we have to share the gospel. Lord, we don't take that for granted. We see the windows closing in. Um, uh, time is, is changing everything. The opportunities are not necessarily something we should be taking for granted. We realize, Lord, that this freedom that we enjoy to engage in the, in the um, proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ freely is a, a great treasure and we are so grateful for our salvation and the fact that others have shared with us that we might know and Lord I just pray that we might continue as a congregation to to uh, seek out the lost and and invite them to know about who know you Lord as as Savior and Lord so um, as we continue on in this Christmas season we just pray for open hearts um, and and inviting hearts from Calvary that would go and, and reach people and seek to, to bring them to an awareness of the truth. Lord, thank you for those, as Pastor Kelvin already prayed, thank you for those we were able to make connections with and, and are, are, are pursuing an investigation of, of you because you're drawing their hearts. Lord, we just, we just pray for um, a great harvest of those who've connected with us. They would come to know the Lord. And this would be a life-transforming Christmas for, uh, for people, Lord. And uh, we pray now for this time together. And the importance of the messages that we are bringing uh, with respect to Jesus, um, the Lord, Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Word. Lord, um, it's an awesome section of theology for us to study and to get our hearts wrapped around and to, to recognize, Lord, just how magnificent Jesus is. Or we, we, could, we can't say enough, we can't pray enough, we couldn't proclaim enough, we couldn't sing loudly enough. Lord, there's just no way we can, can really do uh, justice to the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. But, but thankfully, you've given us your word. And so as we proclaim and, and, and present your word, we know we are pro proclaiming truth, we know we are pleasing your heart, and we know, Lord, that you will help us. And so I pray that you would um, just open up our minds and our hearts this morning to welcome and to receive your truth. And by receiving your truth, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we might know you better and live more appropriately uh, um, 
in the likeness of Christ. And uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Um, I just want to mention this morning, for those of you who really look at the notes and you're studying along and watching and everything, um, we only got point one done this morning for the first service. So if you're, if you're wondering why it's, I'm still on point one and it's like, hey, Rick, it's time to cut. It's, uh, it's because we can only, I, I thought that might happen as I was reviewing last night and this morning, I was looking at the sermon, I was thinking, I, I might have two sermons here. And uh, sure enough, I think I've, I've got at least two. So, um, so don't fear. Um, for those of you who are, are following along, we'll be fine. Um, and we'll just get to point one pretty much, I'm pretty certain. But um, I... I as we, as we look at the second in our series, um, with respect to John's gospel, and, and what, what did the Holy Spirit lay on John's heart after reflection, and we talked about this being really the last writings of the scripture, the Holy Scriptures, maybe 90 years, maybe about 60 years after Christ, and having time to reflect, and, and, and all that he, he uh, had already read and already heard, and... Um, what was it that the Holy Spirit decided or determined that uh, this is the final gospel and there's some things that haven't been said that need to be said? And I'm convinced as I've studied uh, John 1 now that, that um, and I've shared this with you before, that the presentation of John 1 brings us in into uh, such a, um, uh, a relevant section of theology for the time that we're living in, whereby rather than go to the manger and talk about what had already been stated, John gives us the most spectacular picture of the awesomeness of Jesus imaginable. And uh, so last week we looked, of course, at Jesus as word, the very word of God. And... Um, when we talked about uh, three challenges that are uh, upon us in, in our day and age, and that, of course, being um, liberalism and relativism and moralism, today we wanted to look at relativism, and I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to explain what that is in a few moments if you're not sure what it is. You might not have used that in a conversation this week, and so we might talk about what that is. But, but as I looked at, at this section, we're really going to key on one verse today, and that's John 1, 3. And, and um, I've been thinking a lot lately about, the, uh, of course, the, the, the lie of the land and the, the way our culture is unfolding. And in particular, and you know this because you've, you've heard a lot of my sermons lately, I've been thinking a lot about the cultural intrusion into the church and particularly into evangelicalism and particularly into conservative Christianity. And trying to wrestle with what, what is going on here, what's the explanation in particular, I think, um, as, as I have a whole group of uh, millennials sitting down here in front of me, I've been, I've been particularly thinking of, of young evangelicals and the, and the way things are today, what they're facing and, and what's being brought into the church. And, and many of us, if, if 20, let's say 20 years ago when I was just getting rolling um, in ministry, if someone had have said to me that, that uh, 20 years from now, uh, there will be debates within conservative Christianity on the areas of 
uh, of biblical authority in the areas of um, um, sexual perversion, in the areas of, of uh, um, j just general morality. I, I, I would have um, gender fluidity and all the things that are going on. I'm talking about the culture itself, but I'm talking about within conservative Christianity. You would have been able to knock me over with a feather. I would have said, no way. There is no way we're going to have these debates. And um, as I've studied John 1.3, I realize more why the Holy Spirit in establishing John's gospel has laid out for us um, in John 1.3, Jesus as creator. Uh, I think what has happened to us in this short period of time is... Um, we, we, when, we, when we talk about the gospel, when we share the gospel with people, for the most part, we share with them how Jesus died on a cross for their sins and how um, that if they turn to Christ for forgiveness of their sins, he will save them and they will be able to go to heaven. And we have tended to specialize in that message and call that the gospel. And what I realized as I studied John, that, that John is talking about a far more robust gospel on purpose. Because what we have done in, in simply uh, sort of specializing our, our message of the gospel, our message of evangelism, into Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you can ask him to forgive you of your sins, and you can um, then have a relationship with him, and, and you can go to heaven when you die. We have a whole bunch of younger Christians who, are, who, who were raised on that idea of evangelism, that idea of salvation, and have never come to terms with what salvation really means in terms of a robust change of life. It's sort of living this life with the idea, well, Jesus is my salvation safety net. And I can live pretty much any way I want to, and then I can just keep asking him to forgive me. And when I go to have, or when I die, I will go to heaven because Jesus died for my sins, and Jesus is obligated to save me because I believe in him, and I've asked him to forgive me on my sins. What we have failed to do is share the full gospel and a robust gospel of what it means to actually come into a relationship with Jesus Christ through salvation. So I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 3, and we will look today at why we are in the state we are in and what the truth of God's Word is really communicating to us. John chapter 1 and one verse. Through him, who, who are we referring to? Through him... Of course, we're referring to the verses before. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We discovered last week as we worked our way a little bit through the chapter to make sure we were um, setting the table correctly that, that the reference here in this first chapter of John is Jesus. It's Christ. It's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So in the beginning was the Son of God, the word, called the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find out, found out last week that Jesus is God, and we, we uh, realized that He was with God in the beginning. 
And then, so then it says, through him, through the Son of God, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Both in statistics and lifestyle, the faith we have handed off to the next generation does not look like the same faith, at least from my perspective, that we ourselves hold to. Current analysis is blaming our colossal failure to integrate John 1.3 into the gospel. We have, we have not integrated the creation reality of the Son of God into the fullness of what it means to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have gone to the cross, and rightly so. We have talked about forgiveness of sins, but we have never really brought together the idea that, that the the, the robust truth about Jesus Christ is that he is Lord of glory, Lord of creation, the designer of all, and that in, in the gospel message of responding to Christ, we're not only calling on him to be our Savior, but we're calling on him to be our Lord. And that has implications on how we live. We've allowed the gospel to be disconnected from creation. That's the that's what John, you know, it's like, it's like an aha moment. It was an awakening for me as I'm reading this. Why throw in creation here when we're talking about the very beginning, when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why don't you start in Nazareth? Why don't you start in Bethlehem like everyone else? Why do you start before time, John? And if there was no other culture or no other generation, I would say, the living God did it just for us, just for today. And so the product that has been developing within conservative Christianity, because that's the, the thesis this morning, that's the issue this morning. We all know the world is, how the world is living, but what about us? As we embrace this Christmas season and talk about what does... Jesus mean to us? What are the implications? The product that's been, that, that is the result of a truncated gospel is a relativistic Christianity that mirrors the culture more than it does the scriptures. That's why many evangelical Christians, particularly long, young evangelicals, are having second thoughts about the credibility of the Bible. They're caving in to the issues of sexual immorality and gender fluidity, caving into the ideas of, of, of sex being bounded to marriage. The statistics are not encouraging about young conservative Christians outside of marriage and their sexuality. And, and a lot of them are saying, look, at, why don't we move on? <laughs> why don't we move on from that subject and, and get to the things that really matter, like social justice and taking care of the poor and, and oppression politically? Why don't we move on to that? In many cases, uh, living just like unbelievers, saucy and sinful, convinced that Jesus will clean them up at the end, 
It's a relativistic form of the gospel that specializes in the forgiveness of sins while barely regarding the connection between such important things in terms of salvation like creation and design and image and likeness and ethics. So um, we've entitled this series uh, Christmas Recall and what's the issue today? It's a recall on relativism. And the product recall de description will help us to get a look at relativism and what it is. Uh, here's the product recall description. What to do when the product goes rogue? What are we going to do when, when Christians are living no differently than the world and calling themselves passionate believers and followers of Jesus Christ? What are we going to do when... When, when the product is sinning as vigorously as those who don't have Christ and are saying, wait a minute, Jesus died for me and I believe in him and he's obligated to forgive me, so I'm okay. You know, it's kind of like what Paul said, what, should I go on sinning so that grace may more abound? And we all know what Paul said, may it never be, but, but we kind of ignoring that. So um, there's a post-Christian relativism that we see all around us, of which I'm not really going to deal with today, but, but I want to show it to you because we, it defines relativism for us. Pre-pagan, post-Christian, however you see the world, post-modern, um, there are a lot of varieties and names. But here it is. Relativism is everyone lives according to their own light. What's true for them, right? You've heard this before. And determines for themselves what is right and what is wrong. That's, that's a classic definition of relativism. The, the, the funny part about our postmodern relativism and, and the, uh, the so-called tolerance and enlightenment of the people around us is I, I would say they have a very limited relativism. Because you all, you and I, we all know that, that, that everyone's fine with right and wrong and personal truth and person, until, unless it comes to Christianity. And once it gets to Christianity, we're not invited to the table of our own opinions about what is right and wrong. We don't get to be invited to say, well, that's, that's good for you, but this is what I believe. But I'm okay. I'm okay with you as long as you're okay with me. Now, that's not how it's working out there. That's why I would say to you that on the marketplace, in the culture, it's a limited relativism. It's only liberal thinking that is acceptable in the culture. But the thing, the, the, the challenge and the trouble for us is that this idea of relativism has moved its way into the church. There's a bleed. There's a, a, a relativism bleed into Christianity. And it goes something like this. Jesus can be my savior, but I will be my own Lord. Now, nobody's going to say that to your face. And no, no, not likely is someone going to stand up here this morning and testify. Guess what my Christianity looks like? They're going to stand up and say, I'm all about Jesus as my Savior, but guess what? I'm not all about Jesus as my Lord. Nobody's going to say that, but their behavior betrays us. Most of us are living like Jesus is our Savior, but not all of us are living as if Jesus is our Lord. And John is making the case 
of a robust gospel. Keep in mind, this is called the gospel of John, okay? So as we start in here, he's describing the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that Jesus is the word. The good news is that Jesus is the creator. The good news is that Jesus is the redeemer. And the good news is you need to integrate all those you, don't sep- you can't separate them out. You can't say, I'm, I'm really good with Jesus being the Word. I'm really good with Jesus being Redeemer. Because everybody's good with Jesus being Redeemer. But I'm not good about Jesus being Word, and I'm not good about Jesus being Creator. Because there are implications to that. The same Jesus who is our Redeemer is the Jesus who declares what is true as the Word. Is the, is the same Jesus who declares, I was there at the beginning and made all of this. And I reserve certain rights for myself over this universe. In our rush to get people to sign the dotted line of salvation, and we sometimes do that. Just pray this quick prayer with me. We have never stopped long enough to talk about nonconformity, transformation, New creation, image of God, likeness of Christ, design recovery. That's the gospel, beloved. The gospel is what Jesus gloriously does for us when he redeems us from sin, when he rescues us, this gospel of salvation. We have settled for short term short-sighted gain and we are now reaping long-term pains in the church as we now have to debate what at one time was a given salvation is a restart an absolute restart under the the authority of the creator back to eden we get to go Pre-fall expectations, pre-fall implications. What was supposed to be before Eve and Adam sinned. This is what salvation is about. The fullness of the gospel is about this. And all of these things. It, it has implications for our ethics. It has implications for our manhood. It has implications for our womanhood. It has implications for our marriage. It has implications for our stewardship. It has implications for our custodialship. It, it, it has ongoing implications for our identity. In this confused culture around us, I can tell you that salvation doesn't import confused identity. That's not salvation. How do I know the Bible tells me? One verse. I'm going to unpack it for you eventually. You see, that's why I only got one point done this morning. The setup was endless. So the defect diagnosis is this. We have emphasized exclusively Jesus as Savior and underemphasized Jesus as Lord Creator. Now, we haven't done this intentionally, but I, I just want you to see here how important it is for you to go back and look at the story of salvation, the story of the gospel as told through the eyes and heart of John. For John, it was preeminence of Lord 
preeminence or word, preeminence of creation, preeminence of redeemer. And not to dissect those three apart. So the correction recommendation that John is going to give to us here throughout the first chapter of John itself is the Logos, the Son of God, has exclusive claim on what comes into existence and design. And the Logos, Jesus Christ, has the exclusive claim on creation as the source of all life and light. And these come together, integrated into salvation. The truth of salvation is gathered together in these thoughts. Salvation is not just about rescue or being friended by Jesus. Salvation is a complete reworking of a defective human being according to the original design of the one who made us in the first place. That's the glory here. God's intended creation design for you is available. It means falling under the living laws of his lordship. It means to fall under the rule and reign of the Lord of creation. John is to, about to present in verse 3, Lord Jesus over all the universe with a breathtaking structure in a verse that no human being could have ever constructed in terms of its, what it contains and what it says and how it's worded together. It's, it is literally breathtaking. You just sit here in awe and look at this. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It settles it in such a concise way yet a, a profound way. So let me take you on a journey this morning for a few moments into this verse. Let me just say to you that what I see here is this. As designer and maker, the good news that Christ offers is the restoration of creation order and design. If you want to get to the front of the line of what the gospel means, it's not a get-out-of-hell-free charge or card only. It is a, a restoration in each of our lives of the creation order and design. And the implications of this are, are incredible. The mark of genuine salvation is packed up or wrapped up in, in, in Paul's one verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. L listen to this. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, look at Salvation, according to Apostle Paul, and, and packaged together with John here, salvation is restoring the image of God design on people. Uh, progressive liberalism, what's going on around us and what's creeping into the church 
in the areas of morality and sexuality and anthropology, I think you'll agree with me, had no place in Eden. And they have no place in eternity. And they have no place in the church. That's, that's what's presented for us here. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Remember, before we came to know Christ, we had fallen short of the glory of God. Now, salvation is a restoration of, of that image of God. Realize, people, that all humans are made in the image of God. Every human being, the imago Deo, the, that is the, the, the core theology of, of humanity, of anthropology. There isn't a human being, no matter what religion or what race they ascribe to, that is outside of the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God and are of infinite value as a result of that. When you look into the face of a human being, you are looking into the face of God albeit marred by sin. And so in salvation, there is a, a restoration of that design and likeness. So we are being, those who've come to Christ, are now able to reflect the Lord's glory and we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ so that we legitimately must ask ourselves in the church with those who are, who are proposing to be believers and followers of Christ, are you looking more like Jesus? Because that's what salvation is all about. And so when we ask the questions of certain lifestyles and certain ideas that are being proposed or foisted upon the church and suggesting, bring this into the big tent called Christianity. We have to ask ourselves, would Jesus live like that? Is that an expression of Jesus? Does that reflect the idea of Christ? Does that in any way come to terms with the original design of humanity? Because salvation is about a trip back to Eden for all of us so that we will be qualified for eternity through Jesus Christ. And, and so he talks here about transformation of the likeness with ever-increasing glory. Oh, it's a struggle. Beloved, it's a struggle. We get grouchy, we get saucy, we get angry, we come in here uh, with all kinds of baggage and all kinds of stuff. And we, but with ever-increasing glory, Jesus is committed to you turning more and more into his likeness. That's salvation. It's not just this idea of a, a, a head knowledge of Jesus is my salvation safety net for all of my sinfulness. No, Jesus is actually changing you so that you look more like him and ready you for eternity. That's the message of the gospel. And that's the robustness of the gospel. There's no sense in these verses of Jesus as just a salvation safety net. Rather, the, he's the Lord of transformation, changing us in ever-increasing glory. You see, some people uh, picture, some theologians picture the whole idea of the theology of salvation beginning in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. 
and that the New Testament is the second Exodus theology, and I'm okay with that. The whole idea of the picture of God's people in captivity in Egypt and, 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 and the New Testament concept of salvation where we are held captive uh, to our sins and, and, and the second Exodus of the New Testament. But I need to tell you, before New Testament salvation theology and before Old Testament salvation theology in Egypt, there was a place called Eden. And that's where salvation theology began, at the fall of mankind, when Eve and Adam decided that they wanted to live independent of God, and they decided that they didn't like God's design for them. And they decided that they knew better, and they decided that they would live a different way. That's when the gospel began. That's when the quest for salvation began. That, in Genesis 3.15, is a proto-evangelium. That's when the, the, the picture of, uh, of uh, he, the evil one, the seed of the evil one, will um, uh, bruise your heel, but... The, the seed of woman will crush his head. And we have this glorious picture at Christmas of, of Mary and the seed of Mary, the Christ, the, the, the glorious Lord of creation, crushing the head of the evil one. That's salvation theology. And it's not to live in a way that, that, that uh, brings disrepute to Jesus, that, that makes him look bad, makes him look wicked, makes them look perverse, makes them look confused. Our maker's not confused about his identity. And neither are those who come into contact with him through salvation because he's remaking us into the, mar the, the, the image of God that was marred. These commentarians that I call them, whereby they use the scriptures as a guideline and approximate ideas are ruining the church. The Bible is not to be treated as if you're a commentarian, that this is somehow a commentary on God. This is the very truth about God. The entire difference. It's not a commentary. There's this power in these words. This is God's word, the logos the Son of God, this same God who called the universe into existence. Let, let's understand something that the word, logos, is the creative agency of the Godhead. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God speaks and you're saved. That's how it works. So um, John says in terms of, uh, uh, of the creative agency of the Godhead that, um, uh, you know, we have a record of how things were made. I, I, I want to take a pause here for a second and, and um, just make mention that uh, what I think has happened is the intrusion, and some of you are going to say, here it goes again, the intrusion of science into theology. And... Um, I speak with some authority on that. I'm not, uh, I'm not some, some history major. And I'm going to explain that in a moment. Uh, I have a science degree myself. And I know what it's like to grow up in the culture of science. And many of you here, UIT guys and all that kids and all that's going on, you're science, science people. I'm telling you something that um, there is an agenda 
that has been upon us for decades, if not longer than that, whereby science is seeking to demand the intellectual right to define reality. And so pervasive is it, it, it's actually become truth. That science is the definer of reality. And I, I can tell you that the reason we are struggling in conservative Christianity with sexual perversion and struggles in gender fluidity and all of that kind of stuff is because science has declared itself the definer of all reality. And we bought into it. There's an arrogance in science, and the reason I said I'm not a history major is because I was in that world. There was no more arrogant world than pre-med at University of Western Ontario. I mean, if we wouldn't even hang around with the artsies. You're studying English and history and philosophy. You must be of a lower form of intellect. And I'm saying that because the pride and arrogance of science that has been fostered, whereby on our culture, and, and, and I'm speaking of here in Canada, in our culture, the only experts on all things are scientists and healthcare professionals. And theologians are artsies. A lower form of intellect. Not, not worthy to share words with one another. And I'm proposing to you that, that there's plenty of evidence of this. Let me just share a, a brief excerpt from um, the state of California's new science framework. It's not new now, 1989, but this will give you an idea of it's been decades of this kind of thinking that has been going on. Entrenched in the public education system of the state of California. And I can tell you that the state of California is kissing cousins of the province of Ontario. And so um, the premise here is in this new science framework, the idea was what are teachers supposed to say to kids who come into their classroom and have a religious or philosophical background and are struggling with certain things about creation versus evolution? And here's an excerpt. Uh, by the way, J.D. Uh, Moreland uh, posted this in an article entitled, How Theistic Evolution Robs Christians of Confidence in the Bible. And here's, a, here's the statement of the California public school system. At times, some students may insist that certain conclusions of science cannot be true because of certain religious or philosophical beliefs they hold. It is appropriate for the teacher to express in this regard, and in quotations, this is, the, this is the conversation they're supposed to have with the child. I understand that you may have personal reservations about accepting this scientific evidence, but it is, a, it is scientific knowledge about which there is no reasonable doubt among scientists in their field. And it is my responsibility to teach it because it is part of our common intellectual heritage. All the while, you're patting the little kid on his head saying, you and your parents and your church aren't very smart, are you? Because look at the words here. 
scientific evidence, scientific knowledge, no reasonable doubt, common intellectual heritage. What you're being taught at church is not evidence. It's not knowledge. It has plenty of reasonable doubt. It, has, it is not intellectual. John is making it abundantly clear to us that while science might be out there suggesting that it has a claim to de define reality, from John's perspective, it is Jesus alone who reserves the right to define reality because Jesus alone made it all. Jesus alone is the maker of reality. Is it not the designer himself? We're not sitting around as a bunch of soft-headed people uh, with no evidence. I mean, we actually have a written record. The rest is all speculation. We have an apostle who walked with the Lord of glory, who walked for three years with the Lord of creation. I think he laid his head on his lap and said, Jesus, tell me how all this began. And he records it for us. The Word is the creative agency of the Godhead. Without out Him, nothing exists that, that exists. Jesus is the one who decides how everything should be, come into existence. It's a direct conflict with science, the so-called experts, the so-called intelligentsia. Listen, beloved, if we get soft and selective here, we will become progressively liberal and immoral. Because we will cut all of our ties from creative design. See, nothing came into existence here independently, or accidentally, or surprisingly, or randomly, or by chance. Look at the words here. Through Him, all things, nothing was made that is made, that has been made. Without Christ, nothing. Through, all, nothing. It's a colossal leap. A, a, a colossal leap of, of, of intellectual ignorance to suggest that you can harmonize in any possible way an evolutionary creation and the creation that's described in the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's impossible to harmonize those two. They can't, it, 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 it's incongruent to, to try and give any sense here where somehow Jesus produced a starter kit for the universe. Here, go ahead and, and, and find your way. This verse is, is, is categorical. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Not from nothing, all things that came into the state of being came to be by Christ. All of it. By him, through him, for him. All people in the image of God. Sin carries us away from the image. Salvation transforms us back. That's the message of, uh, of the scriptures. The apostle Paul, uh, in, a, in a brilliant uh, uh, section of scripture, Colossians 1, 13 to 19, integrated Jesus as mediator of redemption and Jesus as mediator of creation in one integrated theology of Jesus. One of the most stunning presentations 
Let me read to you. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus as mediator of redemption. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This is Jesus as mediator of creation. And... He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness shall, should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is the ultimate definer of reality. That's who we serve. That's a robust salvation. Anything less is completely wrong. Months ago, there's a petition that went to Donald Trump from 2,200 American professionals, the so-called intelligent, who for this, in this moment were being very intelligent, they asked him to entrench in American, um, American ideology this. Human sex is a binary, biologically determined, and immutable trait from conception forward. The norm for human design is to be conceived either male or female. Human sexuality is binary by design for the obvious purpose of the reproduction of our species. Sex is established at conception, declares itself in utero, and is acknowledged at birth. And by the way, this was not Christians. Jesus, the creator, designer. So let me conclude this way. Sin is a distortion of the creation design and a violation of God's laws resulting in a marred image of God. The Lord of creation in salvation is saving you and I from the distortion of sin that contorted the creative design which makes us want to reject creation design and living in the likeness of God. You don't simply import that then into the church and suggest that somehow the design has changed. You see, salvation is first recovery of design and restoration of the image and likeness of God. When we're talking about the robustness of the gospel, beloved, when we're talking to people about what Jesus died for on Calvary, it wasn't so that we could go on sinning and he would be a salvation safety net for us. It was so that he would recover in us the image of God that was marred by sin rescuing us from that, that we might more and more grow in the likeness of Christ and somehow approximate what we were always designed to be in the Garden of Eden. 
in our biblical manhood, in our biblical womanhood, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our politics, in our charity, in our kindness. Creation is the foundation of the gospel. As Dr. Sandlin writes in a great article on the Center of Culture, uh, Center for Cultural Leadership. And we've been talking as a staff, and I just want to assure you, assure you parents who are in here, we are well aware of the pressure on our children, the public school system, the high school system, the college and the university system. We are well aware of the pressure of those who are hijacking our children and insisting that they have the right to declare and the exclusive right to define reality. We're well aware of this. And we've been talking about increasing the robustness of our own creation theology in our own programming here at Calvary. We're going to work harder at making sure that our children are given the truth and are understanding the nature of the battle that they're really in, the battle for design, the battle for God's likeness, the battle for their, their very souls. We are going to work and we are going to uh, uh, definitely uh, engage ourselves in this because the truly saved are drawn through new creation to become like we were made to be before sin ruined us. Not to live in sin any longer, but to be released from it in our desires and our passions. Salvation revolutionizes relationships. It revolutionizes sexuality. It revolutionizes identity confusion. That's why Jesus died. So, beloved, let me just uh, wrap this up with a, a fairly long statement, and we'll pick up some more of this next, next week. Let us no longer disconnect the gospel message from creation truth. Please. I, 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 I'm going to take a moment. I, I just... When, often when kids come back from university, they come back and start questioning the Bible, and they start questioning creation and evolution, and uh, for me, it is always an indication that there's sin in their life, because there's two things we can do with sin. We can repent of it. Or we can start to get soft on the Bible and try to explain it away. And John comes out firing here with Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Word. Don't allow yourself to get soft in the Scriptures. And don't allow yourself to fall back into sin. But follow after the Lord in the way you live, in the way you behave. Let us no longer disconnect the gospel message from creation truth. In do doing so, we have created a commentarian Christianity, I would call it, of forgiveness only that lacks the robustness of lordship obedience, a form of Christianity that is comfortable with sexual ethics, gender identity, and unholy behavior totally incompatible with the image, likeness, and design of creation, a relativistic religion of contorted design, death, and darkness. Beloved, there is no salvation safety net for that because it's not 
real Christianity. John has a robust gospel. Jesus as word. Jesus as creator. Jesus as redeemer. Never separate the three. Ever. For a moment. Or you will fall away. Our Father, I praise you and I thank you for truth. I ask that we would be discerning and be passionate and committed about the truth about Christ. Lord, let us not allow ourselves to waver from what is true. Let us not be impacted by the culture, but let us be culture change agents. Lord, as you transform us, let not us be pressed into the image of the culture, but let us be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. I pray, O Father. This Christmas recall is about Jesus as Lord of our lives. Savior, yes, but Savior to be Lord. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. This is the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. You know the great news about the gospel is? He doesn't leave us to stay the way we are. We're not left in our, in our sins, but rather he brings a message of recreation to us, a message of love and care and transformation, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. The good news of the gospel is not good news if people are left the way they are. The good news is that Jesus transforms us into new creations. The image that was marred in us by sin, the, the disgrace that we have of ourselves and the guilt that we bear and the shame that we bear is lifted from us as Christ transforms us with an ever-increasing glory bit by bit into the likeness of Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's, that's what we preach. That's what we love. That's the good news message to any of you who are here this morning in your sins you don't have to stay in your sins who is it that has the right to declare what is right and wrong the Lord of glory Jesus the word Jesus the Lord of creation Jesus the designer of what is right and he promises not just to tell us what is right but to move into our lives and change us into what is right. That's the gospel. That's the robust gospel. Never disconnect the cross from creation, ever. It's the same Lord, our Father and our God. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. We offer ourselves to you afresh. We thank you that you are changing us, Lord. That if anyone is here, doesn't know Christ, they can come to you and become a new creation and have the old gone and the new come. Oh, praise you. Thank you, Lord, for the great Christmas recall, transformation in Jesus' name. Amen.